She was a master baker, and I, I can't stress that enough. Black bakers didn't get their due, and it's time for them to be lifted, uh, for their voices to be heard, especially Black bakers in New Orleans. Join us on this episode of Gravy as we head to New Orleans, a city home to some of the South's most iconic dishes. You know them, po'boys, yakamane, snowballs. And mile-high pie. That's the signature dessert at the Caribbean Room in the historic Pontchartrain Hotel. Think seemingly endless layers of ice cream and meringue. What happens when a baked Alaska comes to New Orleans? And while many know the pie, most don't know the baker behind it. I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm Sarah Camp Milam. You're listening to Gravy. 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 A production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells stories of the changing American South. Listen and learn as Kayla Stewart introduces us to Annie Laura Squalls, the woman behind that famous Mile High Pie, a baker whose culinary contributions sweeten a city built, in part, on sugar. Annie Laura Squalls was born on Valentine's Day in 1924 in Adams County, Mississippi. Early on, Squalls demonstrated a love and aptitude for cooking, especially baking. There weren't many culinary jobs available in the closest city of Natchez, so Squalls moved to New Orleans, a place where tourism thrived and kitchen jobs were readily available. In 1960, she became the head baker at the Caribbean Room, the popular in-house restaurant at the Pontchartrain Hotel. It was there that she created her seven-mile-high pie, known colloquially as the mile-high pie. The dessert was so famous, the recipe was published in 1978 in Creole Feast, 15 master chefs of New Orleans reveal their secrets. A collaborative work between the chef Nathaniel Burton and activist and socialite Rudy Lombard, two Black men that recounted stories and interviews from 15 iconic Black chefs in New Orleans. But unlike more well-known figures like Leah Chase or Lewis Evans, few people today know Squalls' name and legacy. I've been on a mission for a long, long time, you know, to document and preserve New Orleans' uh, Black culinary stories. That's Zella Palmer, the chair and director of the Dillard University Ray Charles Program in African-American Material Culture. A food historian, Dr. Palmer has spent much of her career trying to trace and amplify the work of Black chefs and cooks in and around New Orleans, and has a penchant for figures who bucked the rules and defied the status quo. The most famous New Orleans dishes, you know, came out of you know, just pe- just people saying, no, I think it needs a little bit of lemon. I think it needs a little bit more sugar. And I'm not going to listen to my boss. Scholars like Palmer say that Annie Laura Squalls was no ordinary baker. Though she never attended culinary school, she can make sweet magic happen. Often thinking on her feet to tweak a recipe to perfection. Her repertoire included coconut lime cake, gingerbread, and pecan pie. In Creole Feast, 
Burton and Lombard wrote that no one could duplicate her expertise. And Chef Lewis Evans said, What Annie Laura doesn't know about pastry, nobody knows about pastry. She notes that when she began baking, she had no professional training. She had no experience. And so um, when she was presented with a recipe, she she remembered that she was not always sure how to go about preparing it. So her first memory of this kind of recipe is is of uh, a cherry cobbler. That's historian Teresa McCullough, a curator at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. McCullough tends to focus her research on culinary figures whose work has been ignored or underrepresented in food history and media. Figures like Annie Laura Squalls. She told her interviewers she didn't know how to make it, so she had to really break the the recipe down into component parts, think through each component, and essentially perfect each facet of it to arrive at a perfect whole. And so over time, it, it seems that really the um, her approach to, to pastry making and to baking was one of, of thorough creativity and uncompromising standards. In an atmosphere like a hotel, consistency is key. It's important that bakers know how to replicate a dish or dessert from a chef or pastry cook. But as Squalls recounts in Creole Feast, she was baking for herself. In the book, Squalls tells readers, if I don't like the way a recipe sounds, I just change it. Later in the chapter, she adds, even when I cook ordinary food at home, I have to do it my way. You know, I think that that um, articulation of, of her philosophy is so important because she was cooking um, during an era when when her job, at least from the outside, seemed to be to create sweet treats for the pleasure of others and specifically for the pleasure of others who likely would not have welcomed squalls to sit at their table while they enjoyed her desserts or to welcome her children to share a water fountain in school with their own children. One of Squall's most impressive desserts is actually still available at the Pontchartrain Hotel, and it is the Mile High Pie. It's a, a twist on the baked Alaska. It's a, a pastry shell, a, a pie crust that is baked and cooled. Pontchartrain's original recipe called for filling that pie crust with layers of chocolate and vanilla ice cream. But Squall's wasn't satisfied to stop there. Here's McCullough quoting Squall's recollection of how she made the dessert her own. I didn't like the way it looked. It wasn't colorful enough. There was too much white. It was layers of ice cream topped by a meringue and that was baked in the oven, served with chocolate sauce. But her quote, there was too much white. The, the second part of the story is that she took it upon herself to correct it, to add more color to this dessert. And so she added strawberry ice cream. She said she used more egg whites than the recipe called for to make the meringue higher. She added more sugar. And so if you think of this dessert, it was something that was um, visually impressive. It was tall. It was surprising. It was texturally interesting with the chocolate sauce on top, the meringue, ice cream, pie crust. It was clearly delicious. Um, And so, you know, again, this is just another example of how she was given a recipe. She was not fully satisfied with it. She made it better. The Mile High Pie is everywhere in New Orleans culture, and Vogue once named it one of the city's most decadent desserts. The Pontchartrain Hotel promotes their long-running Mile High Pie Club, 
an exclusive dining experience named for the iconic dessert. And at Jack Rose, the hotel's main restaurant today, it's the first item on the restaurant's dessert menu. Yet, I found not one reference to Annie Laura Squalls. And that wasn't a surprise to McCullough. Her presence is still very much in place, but unfortunately she does not seem to be recognized by name um, as, as the pastry chef who really perfected that dish. The lack of recognition, according to Zella Palmer, speaks to a bigger systemic issue. Despite the multicultural influences that have made New Orleans cuisine so globally lauded, Black pastry chefs, cooks, and culinary innovators have rarely been given adequate appreciation or recognition for their invaluable influences on the city's cuisine. Black bakers didn't get their due, and it's time for them to be lifted, uh, for their voices to be heard, especially Black bakers in New Orleans. When we come back, we learn more about the Mile High Pie and consider what is owed to overlooked Black women who were and are integral to Southern foodways. The holidays are nearly here, which means it's time for cooking, eating, memory-making, and, of course, gifting. Lodge Cast Iron Cookware makes the perfect gift for anyone on your list. Classic skillets and pans that work hard year-round, specialty bakeware that's big on holiday charm, and enameled cast iron that helps make the season bright. They've got your gift list wrapped right up. Lodge Cast Iron helps you bring memories to your holiday celebrations and is made to last for generations. Go to lodgecastiron.com to shop their full collection. Lodge wishes you happy holidays. And the Southern Foodways Alliance, for their longtime support of this podcast, thanks Lodge. Hi, it's Melissa, and if you're looking for another great podcast from the South, then you have to check out No Small Endeavor, produced by our friends at Great Feeling Studios and PRX. Each episode, award-winning professor and Nashville native Lee C. Camp merges the worlds of philosophy, theology, the arts, and more to ask the question, how can we live a good life while nourishing the soul? Plus, it's the only show I know that features everyone from legendary actor and filmmaker Rob Reiner to Southern activist and author Anthony Ray Hinton. So go ahead, follow No Small Endeavor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and tell them Gravy Said Hey! Annie Laura Squalls lived and baked in New Orleans for half a century. In 2005, her home was destroyed by flooding in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. She left the city and moved north to Chicago to be near her sons. Squalls died in 2010 at 86 years old. Bloggers have since misattributed the dessert's origins to prominent male chefs of the era. But the credit, according to McCullough, really belongs to Squalls. Yeah, can you tell me about the Mile High Pie? When I went to the Jack Rose restaurant at the Pontchartrain Hotel this fall and ordered the dessert, my waiter gave me a general description. It's a play on baked Alaska, three layers of chocolate, vanilla, and peppermint ice cream, which Annie mentioned as an alternative to strawberry ice cream and Creole Feast. The multi-layered pie stands tall and is drizzled with chocolate sauce and served with minty chunks of candy. It's really quite a dish to behold. 
So I was pretty frustrated that even though it was the first listing on my dessert menu that evening, there was no reference to the iconic culinary figure behind the famous dish. Now, I want to be clear. The waitstaff I encountered at the Pontchartrain Hotel was largely kind, professional, and according to ZipRecruiter, are likely making less than $30,000 per year. They were doing their jobs and aren't the ones who need to answer for this oversight. Numerous owners and managers have come through the hotel, both during and after Squalls' time there. And as leaders of the hotel, I was eager to hear answers from them. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. I reached out to the hotel via email to talk about Squalls' contributions to the hotel, and no one wrote me back. It seems no one wants to speak to her role in the hotel, much less the contributions that the hotel still benefits from. She was a master baker, and I, I can't stress that enough. To understand how someone like Squalls, someone who led a team of bakers at a globally recognized hotel, invented countless innovative confections, and developed a recipe that's become an iconic dessert in New Orleans' tourism industry, could be nearly erased out of New Orleans' culinary history, it's important to understand the racial politics that have shaped the Crescent City. Well, and so this racism really has deep roots, and the roots are in the complicated and embattled history of the word Creole as it has been understood in New Orleans. McCullough explained that Black culture, which includes Creole culture, was historically undervalued, even in a city where contributions from Black Americans are so clearly on display. Historically, the term Creole as it was used in Louisiana encompassed numerous backgrounds, including those with European and African heritage, as well as those with mixed racial backgrounds who were born in the Caribbean or North America. After the Civil War, however, some white Creoles tried to exclude Black Louisianans from claiming their Creole identity. This pattern of exclusion extended to Creole cuisine, the umbrella term for New Orleans food that includes European, African, and indigenous influences. Although Black and mixed-race cooks, both enslaved and free, were essential to developing what came to be known as Creole cuisine, for most of the 19th and even 20th centuries, French and Spanish cuisines received a disproportionate share of the credit. McCullough says that these sort of differentiation techniques continued well into the mid-20th century, just as the New Orleans economy came to increasingly rely on tourism. The city catered to white tourists who could afford the luxury of travel. These tourists were especially attracted to the idea of visiting a city so steeped in French and Spanish European culture that the Black dimension of Creole cuisine was usually downplayed and often tokenized. Throughout this era, Black contributions to New Orleans cuisine were reduced, and elevated cuisine was often attributed to the city's European influences. But the work of Black chefs like Lena Richard, Leah Chase, Lewis Evans, Nathaniel Burton, and Annie Laura Squalls refutes this narrative. You know, I, I would really argue that this racist exclusion had, had an economic dimension. I mean, who would reap the profits when tourists flocked to restaurants uh, selling Creole cuisine? But it also had a more um, kind of nebulous dimension that had to do with cultural belonging and creativity and ingenuity. McCullough pointed out that notably, New Orleanians of color who identified as Creole never buy into these new forms of exclusion. Iconic New Orleans chef Lena Richard, for example, proclaimed herself in the cooking to be Creole, along with Leah Chase, whose restaurant Dookie Chase still stands as a centerpiece of the Tremaine neighborhood. The history of Creole bakers is the history of Black bakers, 
There's a long history of Creole bakers, pastry chefs, cooks, and chefs in New Orleans. Records show that the tourists were intrigued by sweet treats created by people of color. Things like kala, for example, which were the fried rice fritters inspired by African preparations that enslaved people and formerly enslaved people made and sold in the city streets. They also had a predilection for things like Creole cream cheese, spruce, ginger and pineapple beers, figs and blackberries, coffee, and a dish called pen pitot, a cold sweet potato pudding. There's really a long history of, of Creole New Orleanians um, feeding the city in sweet and savory ways. Though not Creole herself, Annie Laura Squalls was part of this rich Black history. After she arrived in New Orleans, she began baking in 1949. She prepared salads and worked as a pastry cook at the local Meal a Minute, which, according to McCullough, was an early chain restaurant in New Orleans that sold affordable dishes for families. Census records from 1950 show that she lived with her husband, Reverend Bernard Squalls, on South Claiborne, indicating that they lived in a community surrounded by people who made the city run. Around that time, Squalls' life changed. In 1960, she came to the Pontchartrain Hotel uh, and worked as a pastry chef uh, for the Caribbean Room, which was their fine dining restaurant at that hotel. Immortalized as the iconic hotel where Tennessee Williams wrote A Streetcar Named Desire, the hotel was a place of local and national importance, an iconic NOLA institution. Over the years, Bob Hope, Walt Disney, Luciano Pavarotti, James Beard, and Cole Porter all stayed and dined there. Squalls was an exceptional baker, and her food attracted prominent visitors, but she was also very similar to a lot of women of her time. There were so many women that were like her during slavery, post-Reconstruction, during Jim Crow, uh, and still today. The reality is that these very women have often been underrepresented in conversations about the culinary greats of the United States. In a country where the food media has been and continues to be fascinated with white male chefs and white institutions, master pastry chefs like Squalls are often undervalued, and their work is lost within the annals of history. And these challenges are intersectional, meaning squalls and Black women like her face challenges due to both their race and gender. I think it's reasonable to, um, to, to think that she was likely um, paid less than, um, than her male counterparts, than others who were working in the kitchen with her, uh, helming the savory side of the menu. Um, People like um, Nathaniel Burton and uh, Lewis Evans, who were the executive chefs of the Caribbean Room, they gained national renown. They cooked for people like Julia Child. Um, Squalls is not really listed alongside those names. Male chefs and those who held the title of executive chef often received more recognition than women and pastry chefs. Thankfully, Creole Feast documents talented Black men and women giving us the chance to learn more about figures like Squalls. But Black culinary icons deserve more than a few pages of writing. We've likely lost a lot of information about Squalls' life because racism manifests in cultural erasure. Beyond the recipes, the specific recipes and and techniques that are lost, uh, there's certainly a greater systemic cultural loss that happens when people like Annie Laura Squalls aren't pictured on the cover of restaurant menus or mentioned among a a pantheon of chefs. Um, And 
it, this has to do with food, but it's it's bigger than than food as well. In any setting, it's powerful for someone to understand that they belong there in the present and in the past, that there's a history of, of others who are similar to them in various ways who came before them. Seeing oneself represented among pastry chefs or chefs uh, communicates to that person that they can do that work too. Before Rudy Lombard passed away, Palmer spent time getting to know the local activist, and he told her why he decided to write Creole Feast in the first place. He said, because, you know, no one was talking about Black chefs in New Orleans and bakers. And he said, and every time I went to go eat at some of these restaurants, you know, I would just be blown away by what was coming out of the back of the house. And yet their um, images, they weren't, you know, marketed, their voices weren't heard. And he said, I wanted to do something about it. It's important that he did, because Black women in the city's culinary industry looked to stories like Squalls for inspiration. I was really exposed to a lot of the more simple, what, what I would call them the simple classic identified Southern desserts. Pies, pecan pie, sweet potato pie, casseroles, bread pudding. That's Caitlin Guerin, Black pastry cook and owner of Langyat Baking. At Langyat Baking, Caitlin merges the Creole flavors and traditions that shaped her childhood with techniques picked up during her experiences in California and Copenhagen. The result? Flaky Binet biscuits with spicy honey butter. Sweet potato, coconut, and cream cheesecake with poached plums. And chocolate sablet cookies have made her a local sweets hero. When she came to New Orleans to bake full-time in January 2020, she knew that there were African-American culinary figures that had shaped the city and could inspire her own journey as a pastry chef. Coming back, regaining more knowledge, I'm like, oh, there was a whole other world out here that was missing. That's what I'm delving into now. Caitlin, who first became familiar with Squalls' story around 2015, has looked to the baker as a source of inspiration and an example of a long-standing tradition of culinary ingenuity among Black bakers. I think it's really beautiful that she sort of paved the way to start doing that and just create her own story because she needed to, because she was a Black head chef, because she needed to make her way and stand out, you know? And that's what's important for us as women, as head chefs, as bakers, as pastry, you know, just to be in these realms and and make a name for ourselves. And for Palmer, remembering these stories allows us to understand the true, full history of this incredible city. This love for Creole cuisine and culture is rooted in New Orleans story. Women who were bakers or uh, women who, you know, created and, and were chefs like, you know, Lena Richard and cooks, they are the backbone of this culture in this city. You know, we wouldn't have the dishes that somebody was making those dishes. It wasn't just, you know, black men who were, you know, chefs in the city. It was black women who run the back of the house as well. For Palmer, honoring the Creole bakers who influenced the city is a way to truly know and love the city of New Orleans. We are reclaiming our stories and we are, um, you know, really shifting the narrative of the idea um, of a more white male hegemonic, you know, industry that erases us. 
you know, erases our stories, erases our ancestors. And so, um, you know, we have our own stories to tell and, and we're telling them indeed, you know, and I think we're just at the beginning. Kayla Stewart produced and reported this episode. Kayla is an award-winning food and travel writer. She's a columnist at the Bittman Project, and her work has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Condé Nast Traveler, Bon Appetit, Travel and Leisure, Eater, Texas Monthly, and many more. We thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music and Jazar for our donor music. Fact-checking thanks go to Katie King. And thanks to Olivia Terenzio for editing this episode. Managing editor for Gravy and all other SFA media is my co-host, Sarah Camp Milan. Mary Beth Lassiter serves as our publisher. Visit us at southernfoodways.org to see our latest films produced for the 2022 Fall Symposium. Listen to poet Jason McCall, celebrate Lifetime Achievement Award winner Helen Turner, and learn about Pitmaster's past with Adrian Miller. While you're there, please consider becoming a member or making a donation. Your dollars fund our work and help us make more gravy. 